Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. You've likely heard the terms windbreaks, shelter belts, or tree rows. The terms describe a popular habitat improvement that really benefits wildlife. Dr. Dale's guest this month is a terrific resource on the topic and other efforts related to habitat management and habitat restoration. He is Gene Miller of Amarillo, a longtime friend of Dr. Dale's and a champion of private land stewardship. Let's join Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Well, good morning, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with y'all here in the new year, and we're hoping y'all having a great new year over in Waco and the rest of our listeners around the state or the country or the world, wherever they're tuning in from. And we certainly hope that 2023 uh, meets our hopes and expectations of being a better quail year for most of us here in West Texas. Uh, those of you in South Texas are just now getting started with your quail season and hope to hear some good reports. Uh, because y'all had some pretty good late hatches. And so uh, be sure and share those with us. Uh, you can send those to me at drollins at quailresearch.org. And I'm always interested in hearing your reports. I want to suggest a New Year's resolution for us. And that New Year's resolution is that we begin to appreciate our habitats. And when I say appreciate, I don't just mean uh, clap your hand for a little blue stem. I mean to judge with heightened awareness or to be cautiously or sensitively aware of. I've made a career out of appreciating various things, and uh, this year we're going to be appreciating habitats for wildlife. And so I uh, encourage you to do that. This month's podcast is going to be dedicated to the newest member of our team here at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation starting this month with Ms. Dana Wright. Uh, for those of you uh, in the Rolling Plains, uh, Dana is certainly no stranger to you. She served a 30-year career with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, uh, highly decorated, uh, receiving numerous awards, and we're certainly proud to have her as part of our team. And per our guest recommendation, uh, we're going to dedicate this podcast on shelter belts to Dana Wright. As you think about some special habitats across Texas, as a quail hunter, you got to think of places like Hebronville and those live oak mots and that deep sand or some of that sand shin oak country there on those Knobscot soils in, in Stonewall County and other places. If you're on the high plains and you think about the, the jewels of the high plains that have been called, you're thinking about those playa lakes. And if you're into hunting ducks, hunting uh, uh, pheasants, you know how special habitats those are. Once you go east of the high plains, and boy, there's some beautiful country along the eastern half of the Texas Panhandle. Probably the most special habitat of those riparian areas, those cottonwoods. And can't you just hear the turkeys gobbling now uh, if you listen carefully? So those are all special. Uh, we're blessed to, to have those uh, in those parts of Texas. But the one we're going to focus on today, unlike the previous two, is not a natural situation. These are man-made, and these are shelter belts or tree roses are sometimes called. And I bet you've noticed them if you've ever hunted north of Paducah up through the eastern part of the Panhandle, through western Oklahoma, all the way up to North Dakota, 
uh, you've seen these tree rows, and I hope that you appreciate not only what special habitats they provide for various species of wildlife, but also what great hunting experiences chances are you've had in those. As a kid growing up in Hollis, Oklahoma, as the youngest of three or four hunters, I was always relegated to have to walk down through the middle of the tree row, and my older brother and my my good friend Timmy McGee, late Timmy McGee, they'd be on the outside where I'd be flushing the birds out to them, but that was just part of the rights of uh, being growing up as a quail hunter. If you've ever listened to me, you've read my writings, or learned about the Bob White Brigade, you've heard us talk about silver bullets, inspirational quotations. And one of those I saw on a church marquee in Stephenville, Texas, and it's a special one. And it says, one generation plants the tree and another enjoys the shade. The things we do today, we may not see the benefits of them, but our, our offspring will one or two generations away. And I think that's an especially poignant remark as we talk about shelter belts. And we're going to go into the history of this and talk about uh, what I'll just generically refer to as the oasis of the plains. And our guest today has a lot of experience with that. Our guest today is Gene Miller, Gene T. Miller from Amarillo. And I'm going to ask Gene to provide his credentials in just a minute, but just let me summarize by saying I've known Gene about 35 years. And if you think I'm nuts about quail, Gene Miller is just that crazy about wild turkeys. And so we share a lot of common thread there. Welcome aboard, Gene. We're glad to have you on the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. Glad to be here, Dale. And I'd ask that you start off with just giving us your elevator speech, your bona fides uh, of uh, where you're from, how you got to where you, you're at today, and uh, give, us a, give us a synopsis of your experiences. Well, grew up in San Antonio, um, uh, camping and fishing uh, with the family, and was very active in Boy Scouts and uh, <clears throat> achieved the rank of Eagle. And uh, during the summer of 67, went to uh, – went to uh, Philmont Scout Ranch at Cimarron and uh, met a feller there that had a degree in wildlife science. He was a high school biology teacher, went to Texas A&M and boy, I knew what I wanted to do after that and got through A&M somehow by the, you know, dumb luck and the grace of God and uh, with a, uh, a degree in wildlife and fishery sciences and a commission in the Marine Corps. That was right after Vietnam and uh, served on active duty, floated around all over the all over the oceans for several years and, and trying to serve our country and then uh, had the good fortune of learning how to use the bag of tools uh, from uh, July of 77 through uh, December of 85 with the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I uh, was in the southern Piedmont, far western mountains, and then back in the northern Piedmont. Came back home to Texas with the wife and one baby girl and uh, landed in the Piney Woods. Worked in the Piney Woods over there on uh, public hunting lands and district activities and Eastern wild turkey restoration and promoted and uh, came up here uh, to the, uh, to the panhandle, to the high plains and rolling plains uh, just a little bit before meeting you in uh, March of 89 and the late uh, old regional director, late Bob West, he said, uh, just, just go up there and get with the other hands and see what you can learn because you're flying blind in 56 counties right now. So he was right. And uh, after that met you and, uh, Finished a career with Parks and Wildlife Department after 31 years service. Worked for 10 years for the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation, and I'm doing some work now for the Texas State Soil and Water Conservation Board. And still trying to 
stay active, but it's been a, it's been a great 45 year career. Well, again, uh, we've known each other for over 35 years and, uh, we've plowed a lot of ground together speaking. We've enjoyed one another's companies and been a, had a great opportunity to work with a number of great people. I'll just throw out a few of those folks like Steve Nelly and Charles Kaufman, and Ricky Lennox with NRCS and many of your colleagues there in Turkey Parks and Wildlife. But I, I do want to re go back to that mention of Dana Wright because uh, you wrote one of the letters of recommendation for you. So shortly, just tell us uh, what our cooperators and our stakeholders are in store uh, in working with Dana Wright. Dana is, uh, she's a true consummate wildlife professional. Uh, she loves the land and uh, the, the wildlife of Texas. She, she relishes working with assisting private landowners because we know in a state like Texas and Oklahoma too, for that matter, that the majority of the open space lands, wildlife habitat is in the hands of private landowners. She has distinguished herself um, and been uh, been recognized by national conservation organizations like National Wild Turkey Federation and also more recently as the Wildlife Professional of the Year by Texas Parks and Wildlife Department's Wildlife Division. Uh, just consummate professional, knows how to kick dirt, talk to landowners, uh, is not afraid of hard work. and uh, she uh, early, or in the, a while back in the in the career when we were working here together in the Panhandle Wildlife District, she actually helped us install several of these uh, uh, more modern windbreak uh, demonstrations, if you will, uh, wildlife windbreak demonstrations. So she's she's no stranger to hard work. Um, she's an excellent communicator. You'll be seeing and hearing good things from her as part of your team. Well, we're certainly proud to, to have her aboard and uh, I look forward to working with her even more closely over the years. Uh, one of the things that I've worked quite closely with Gene with beginning in about 1994 was the Rolling Plains Bob White Brigade and Gene uh, being a Marine came down and uh, it just brought a, a caliber of excellence that uh, many of us were unaware of and the, and the brigades are, I often call them a boot camp for Bob White management. Uh, now it's available in, in eight different camps, different species. But it all started right there at the Crooked River Ranch with Roy Wilson and, and Gene Miller and, and a number of others down there. And uh, we always sing cadences and, and marching as a way to bring these kids out of their shell and to, to teach them to uh, use their diaphragm and speak loudly and plainly where they can be heard. And, and we always, Gene would always celebrate his birthday down there during the camp. And so we had some great times with that. Shout out to Misty Sumner for one of those, which Gene and Misty will certainly remember. But uh, we also wrote a cadence about Gene. It goes like this, if you'll indulge me. Mean Gene, the Bob White Marine, leads a life that's pure and clean. Taught us all to give a hoot. Showed us the Bob White salute. Now, I'm not going to go into what the Bob, Bob White salute is, but Gene learned it at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And... Uh, in order to come and experience that. If you've ever been in the Bob White Brigade, you know all about the Bob White salute. So, Gene, I salute you for uh, all of all of your early efforts there with the brigades. I invite you to back because uh, Gene refused to call our marching, marching to cadences. He called it rambling with audio. But uh, we've improved a lot, Gene. I think you'd be proud if you'd come back to see us now. And speaking of the brigades, um, uh, the recruiting is open for that. And we're always looking for recruits. And so if you'll go to our website, 
texasbrigades.org, texasbrigades.org. Uh, you can sign up for that and sign your 13 to 17 year old youngster up. And we also need adults to come in and serve as Covey leaders. And again, there are a total of eight different camps being, uh, being conducted next summer. So I encourage you to check that out. All right, Gene, let's get back to the topic of the day and that being tree rows or windbreaks. And again, now you're especially a turkey hunter. I was a quail hunter growing up, but many of my early hunts and my early childhood memories revolved around those shelter belts. And I lived out on the north side of a little town called Hollis, Oklahoma, there in southwestern Oklahoma. And about a mile away, there were three tree rows. And I can remember when I was nine or 10 years old, me and buddy coon dog my little brother kent and his buddy wishbone we'd take our uh, radio flyer wagon and some snacks and our bb guns and our dalmatian dog tray and we'd make that trek up there a mile and we'd spend the day at one of those tree rows uh, just always some special memories of that it introduced me to a lot of great quail hunting uh, if you're into mississippi kites you know how important tree rows can be for those a lot of other birds pheasants if you've ever hunted pheasants in that cold frigid weather you know that that's a honey hole and uh, gene talk to us about some of the other wildlife species that benefit from tree rows well certainly in the uh in the eastern panhandle in the rolling plains of texas and western oklahoma uh it's no doubt that they contributed to the you know the colonization and the increase of of uh not only white-tailed deer but but rear grand wild turkeys uh, because of the structure there, you know, uh, roosting cover for turkeys and 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 loafing cover and uh, travel corridors for white-tailed deer. There's just there's just no doubt about it. Uh, in the in the uh, in the era of restoration, you know, that both that both game departments participated in uh, those those areas of habitat were just uh, uh, so critical, and they they no doubt helped those species. And we're going to get into the form and the function of those in just a minute and the history of that because it's truly a, a historical success for conservation. And uh, there is a lot of history that uh, uh, we won't cover all of it, but it is something that uh, out of something bad came something good. And we'll get into that in just a second. But Gene, won't you define for us? I mean, again, I drive up Highway 83 all the time and have all my life. And once I get up to about Paducah, I began to see these tree rows, these shelter belts. And again, they're, that's kind of the southwestern distribution of them, but they go north throughout the Great Plains. Uh, so tell us just a little bit about when we say tree row or shelter belt, what are we talking about? And uh, kind of tell us about maybe some of the early history of those. Sure. Um, shelter belt is uh, basically a barrier of vegetation, which usually consists of lines of trees and shrubs. Uh, they're, they're created to restrict the damage and effect of, of wind, wind activity. Uh, and it's used in agriculture and especially uh, at, the, at the start of this, the whole the old original uh, Great Plains Shelter Belt project to protect crops and livestock, to protect soil um, uh, by guarding against erosion through topsoil depletion. Uh, as you said, uh, for the farm these farmers and ranchers uh, that we're used to working with and We'll just keep it here at home, Eastern Panhandle and Western Oklahoma. Uh, they refer to them as uh, tree rows, windbreaks. Um, they they can they can really help uh, reduce the the wind velocity dramatically, and it uh, this is this is accomplished by one or more 
<coughs> lines of these trees being <coughs> planted in the path of a, a prevailing wind. And uh, yes, you and I know of a lot of them uh, planted uh, uh, up and down, up and down the plains. And again, we'll we'll focus on uh, eastern Panhandle and western Oklahoma. Uh, we know of some that are planted on a uh, certainly you know around the the perimeter of properties on a on a north south axis, but a lot of them are planted on an east-west axis, and that's originally, and that's on purpose because prevailing winds in our country out of the south-southwest. And again, um, they're there. They had an agronomic purpose, a uh, conservation purpose, to keep the soil in place, and that's one of the primary edicts that uh, as stewards of the land, we got, we got to be mindful of is to keep the soil in place. So Typically, Gene, what kind of soil types are we talking about where we're going to find and use uh, windbreaks? Sandy and sandy loam and the rolling plains and, and uh, a lot of times in the, in the, where they're planted have been established in the high plains. They'll be on uh, clay and clay loam soils. And we talk about those natural habitats, those riparian zones. And, and sometimes when we talk about brush sculpting, we remind people that straight lines are are not natural they're an artifact of uh, human uh, involvement but uh, these obviously these shelter belts were planted in straight lines like i said either north south or east west give us some of the typical dimensions are, are they typically say a half mile long and an x number of feet wide or, or what's the what's the amateurs there they will be they will be in, in terms of the old historical belts established by the by the uh, uh Work Progress Administration, later renamed the, the the Work Project Administration, and the Civilian Conservation Corps, the old CCCs, um, in the in the original Great Plains Shelter Belt Project, those things were anywhere from four to eight to fifteen rows wide, Dale, and um, uh, maybe maybe one hundred and fifty to two hundred foot wide at, at the widest, uh, and and many many a lot nar more narrow than that. But uh, they would run easily a quarter mile, if not a half mile, uh, east and west. I have seen some longer than that, several old ones. But typically, a half mile was about it. And they would be they would be established many times on section lines. And it, it seems to me, as I think about it, uh, as I move from, again, the first ones I see are typically right there north of Paducah. Um, they may go a little further south than that. But I've been up through Kansas and Nebraska, as many of our other listeners have, uh, South Dakota. And it seems like the further north you get, the bigger, the wider they get. And again, I guess there's some form and function to that. Yes, yes, because of the because of the winds and so forth. These things, when this when this uh, when this Great Plains uh, uh, shelter belt project started, it was it started about the lower rolling plains of Texas. You know, uh, down down about the Brazos River, ran up through eastern Panhandle, through western Oklahoma, central Kansas, south central Kansas is 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 ripe with a with a very heavy density of them. Not as many as there was a while ago. But the, and then it kind of thins out. Then they get heavy again up through eastern Nebraska, South Dakota, all the way into North Dakota. And typically, the further north you go in the Great Plains, they will typically be uh, 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 wider, and because of the because of the wind situation up there. And one of the greatest benefits of these, from a wildlife standpoint, not only is it escape cover, it's some vertical structure, but it's thermal cover. 
And again, the further north you go, as, as we can all appreciate the colder it gets and the more important uh, that type of thermal cover uh, becomes to critters like bobwhite quail and ringneck pheasants and several others, I'm sure. Uh, let's, Gene, let's talk about what some of the species of trees that were used. And again, I'm most familiar with those in southwestern Oklahoma and, and, and they use a lot of bodark, Osage orange. Some people call them horse apple. Uh, and I got a special story to tell about bodark trees because uh, now they're 75 years old. There's some pretty large ones up there. And I still enjoy black powder deer hunting. And Oklahoma has a real black powder deer season, uh, typically in mid to late October. So mm -hmm. some of the most special black powder memories I remember would be sitting next sitting in a tree row at the base of a bodark tree after a killing frost and all of a sudden you, it, you hear what sounds like bowling balls being dropped through the trees and that's those horse apples if you will uh, falling down and just one of the special audio memories that I have uh, and, and you know I've also noticed Gene that, that those deer after those bodark leaves begin to fall off drop off from uh, uh, a frost, those deer seem to really like them. They'll be taking them off the ground. So uh, obviously there's some forage values as well. But but besides bodark, what are some of the, the species that we commonly see among the, the, the shelter belts that we're most common with? Dale, I've, I've had the good fortune of, of working with so many landowners that had many of these old belts and and uh, the privilege of uh, uh, hunting some of those areas and, and working with them, helping them with some with some renovation work and maybe refencing and expanding of those things. But um, just looking at an old uh, chart here from, from further up in the plains, the Dakotas, and there's some, there's a lot of commonalities as to what we have. You can go out there today and actually find some that, that uh, hold on to your hat. Now you can find some that, that have cottonwoods that have American elm, not, not Siberian elm, but American elm that, that deer love to browse on. And that's a, that's a beautiful native tree. Uh, desert willow, honey locust, uh, of course, netleaf hackberry. Uh, some of them have green ash in them. Burr oak. I've seen some burr oak. Uh, the, the, a lot of the earlier original ones were planted with, with either ponderosa or scotch pine. Uh, we'll, we'll get to a mention of that a little more here somewhere during the podcast. Um, Eastern red cedar, uh, uh, Rocky Mountain juniper, uh, um, also, some of them have Russian olives, uh, choke cherry, uh, American plum. There's just a number, even Western saltberry. And I have, I, I know of some with uh, with little walnut as well. And these old wide belts, I mean, you can just about mark it down, uh, like your like your one of your favorite stories about the bodarks falling. Those wider, more open belts with some of those larger trees that have now matured, even if there are some spaces or holes in those belts, if, if there's been periodic grazing or there's any kind of openings up and down through there, you can just about guarantee, almost guarantee uh, to, to a time that you ease down some of those belts in the spring, you're going to see you're going to see big, good, big gobblers strutting in the in the inside of those things in the middle of the day, uh, following hens right along with them because of that. Again, because of that loafing cover in there. Yeah. So again, they they benefit a lot of the critters that you and I and others like to pursue, and 
And again, their, their travel lanes. I mean, golly, if, if a guy wants to deer hunt there in Northwestern Harmon County, you find your tree row and you sit in one of those things and, uh, you, you be patient enough and there's going to be a buck come trotting down through there during the rut kind of thing. So the importance of them as travel lanes and connecting various habitats, they just offer a lot of things, uh, simultaneously for various species of wildlife. Uh, Gene, as we, as we talked about those, um, some of those species, and, and you and I have discussed this, how we sometimes as biologists, we have times for confessions of ecological sins and uh, very few of us are blameless. And I'll start off by saying, I started off the early part of my career by touting the benefits of old world blue stems in Oklahoma. And those things took off like a uh, took off like wildfire, and not necessarily good for wildlife. And, and again, although Leopold shot wolves back in the twenties, and then later regretted that. And, and I know one of our uh, great uh, mentors was A.S. Jackson, and uh, he did a lot of wonderful things. But I think he also released autumn, or I'm sorry, Russian olives, and then those things went kind of berserk up from there north and to the west and i think you had a confession you might be willing to make too oh lord i'm guilty of many ecological sins uh first by helping propagate uh, autumn olives in uh, in uh, western north carolina and then later here uh russian olives uh as well here in the great plains and uh, yeah there's no doubt if uh, if mr as could come back now he he probably would think twice about having polluted that whole entire Canadian river bottom with, uh, with not so much blackberry vines, but, uh, but with Russian olives. Yeah. Hindsight's always 2020. We really it is. So, yes, it is. And confessions are good for the soul. So we, we hope that's the case uh, for those of us that may have had some faux pas during our career. You know, Gene, it just hit me as we were listing those, number of species and several of those are quite palatable white-tailed deer uh, but these were planted back mostly during the 30s uh, when the white-tailed deer numbers were very low i wonder what would have happened had the deer population been what it is today i wonder if it had the same success in training planting these various species uh, if you had a an abundant white-tailed deer population around well, I don't know. That's hard to say because of the because of the herbivory. But uh, it's uh, if 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 this is the right spot, it might be good to just kind of give a few little a few little notes and a little sketch about how these things were established and and how the people were involved in this. Absolutely, take it from there and give us a little bit about the history of this. There were there were several trains running. There were several trains running back there in the in the early thirties. We went through the terrible. Uh, dust bowl in the plains and and more especially our country here uh in 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 uh, in the panhandle and in western oklahoma we went through the dust bowl uh, uh president franklin delano roosevelt uh he already had a feller by the name of uh, uh u hammond bennett a real smart man by the name of u hammond bennett running the little temporary agency that was in the department of the interior called the soil erosion service well when when the new deal came along uh, and and the and the his brain trust decided to go into action. They uh, moved that soil erosion service, and it became the soil conservation service with Hugh Hammond Bennett uh, as the first chief, the director chief, if you will. And it got situated in the Department of Agriculture. At the same time, 
Um, the New Deal legislation established the Work Progress Administration, which later in the in the late 30s was renamed as the Work Project Administration, and then also the Civilian Conservation Corps, which had a, a lot of um, a lot of uh, former active duty and former military uh, folks in it. This this put America to work. This put America to work. The the Great Plains Shelter Belt Project was born. Um, and by 19, this was, this all came about in 34, 1934, 35, uh, by, uh, I'll just give you the short version here. By 1942, 220 million trees had been planted, covering 18,600 square miles in about a 100 mile wide zone that we talked about a while ago that started in the lower rolling plains of Texas about the Brazos River and ran all the way to the to the northeastern North Dakota, the Canadian border. Um, you know, even even as of 2007, the uh, it was said that the federal the federal government's response to the Dust Bowl, including uh, the what that later became known as the Prairie States Forestry Project, which planted the Great Plains Shelter Belt, that it was uh, represented at that time the largest and most focused effort of the of the federal government to address an environmental problem. Now that may be have been surpassed by the conservation program of today as we know it by now but uh, anyway um, how about if we talk about the um, so so in, in summary uh, uh, the uh, civilian conservation corps was involved work project administration was involved as it was finally called but but uh, I know you want to talk about the number one shelter belt the number one shelter belt uh, that was established I know you want to go there uh, tell me, Gene, where was that very first shelter belt established? Who was the leader during that time? Set <laughs> <laughs> it up to you to, to, to slam dunk over the net. Uh, the number one, this is this is straight out of the record. Number one shelter belts located in, as you as you pointed out to me, Old Greer County in southwestern Oklahoma. And in uh, Oklahoma Forestry Services, as they're known today, they're the first state forester, Mr. George R. Phillips. He had the distinction of planting the very first tree um, in the federal government's first shelter belt in 1935. And it, by the way, was an Austrian pine uh, planted on the, we did a little research, obviously, before the, before the podcast, planted on the Curtis farm near, near Willow, Oklahoma, where your old buddy uh, Terry Bidwell hails from, uh, on March the 18th of, uh, I guess that was 1935. The project called for a large-scale planting of trees across the Great Plains, and and again, it was about a hundred-mile wide zone. Uh, they used a lot of eastern red cedar and, and green ash and some of the other species that we mentioned. Um, it was um, it was it was quite the undertaking, and they and they also hired and and reimbursed uh, private landowners, farmers, and ranchers out there after these things were established to cultivate them with old Scoville hose, cultivate them and water them and keep them going. They didn't have any weed barrier fabric mulch back in those days, but the, the entire project was estimated to have cost about $75 million. Can you imagine from 1935 to 1942, when it all pretty much shut down and those agencies were shut down $75 million over a 12 year period. And um, it was said that when disputes arose over the funding sources, uh, um, because the project was considered to be a long-term strategy and, and not ineligible for, and therefore it was not eligible for emergency relief funds. Uh, President Roosevelt transferred the program to the Work Projects Administration, or the yeah, the Work Project Administration. Anyway, 
it it continues today with the, with the NRCS's uh, Plains Forestry Project in uh, I think it's headquartered up in Lincoln, Nebraska. But it was when you think about it again by 1942, 30,233 shelter belts have been planted in that whole span of country from the Brazos River in the lower rolling plains all the way to Canadian border. And that contained 220 million trees covering 18,600 acres or square square miles, excuse me, 18,600 square miles. That was that was quite the project. I guess they're really, in terms of, if, if I could say farm bill programs, probably hasn't been such a great undertaking as that, maybe since the CRP during the Conservation Reserve Program during the mid-1980s that affected a, yes. lot of, a lot of acres and had some uh, tangible wildlife benefits related with that too. But but yes. again, I, I, you just got to be thankful that we had uh, we had leaders with foresight. Uh, you mentioned Mr. Bennett and, and his colleagues and those. Again, if you think back to when the lowest point in wildlife uh, populations were in the U.S. It was typically during the 20s and the 30s, and I mean, and a That's number right. of reasons for that. Uh, That's right. Really, some horrible agricultural practices, the Dust Bowl days, uh, unregulated hunting. So, uh, certainly, the seed that started a lot of that, no, no pun intended, was the shelter belt program. And, and again, having tried to plant some trees, and I mean, that was that had to be a, a massive. Uh, undertaking and it, it's really quite remarkable that uh, they had the survival and so forth they did because like I said and we're going to talk a minute about uh, some more modern technologies for increasing this uh, the establishment and survival of those kind of trees but they didn't have those and they relied upon manpower and uh, not only did they uh, get the the tree rose, the, the shelter bell started but again uh, kept a lot of people working when they couldn't find jobs and you're talking about killing birds, killing a lot of birds with the same stone. Well, the shelter belt program uh, was effective at doing that. So uh, it absolutely I, did it. And and by the way, by the way, in the in the research for this uh, uh, for this podcast, um, not only did the uh, did the did the Civilian Conservation Corps, one of the big workhorses of this project, um, and and led by a lot of the old uh, uh, army boots. Uh, not only did they hire uh, uh, young men, 18 to 25 years old, I think later it was expanded to, from 17 to 28 years old, but they had a separate, a separate uh, uh, section where they employed 15,000 Native Americans. You know, it's entirely plausible. I, I haven't talked to any of the old timers about this, but it's entirely plausible that 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 many Native Americans, more especially in Western Oklahoma, probably has helped establish many of these plantings. Well, again, I, I know you and I and, and any sportsman ought to tip their caps uh, to the, the folks that helped make this a reality. I, I want to back up just a little bit. We were confessing our ecological sins a while ago and talking about some of those species that were used. Uh, one that uh, uh, started out looking really good, but uh, maybe over the last 30 years has kind of become a pariah is eastern red cedar. And I know when I worked for Oklahoma State, uh, they were having pretty good political, heated political battles between groups like the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association and the Oklahoma Forest uh, Service uh, because the red cedars are one. And if you've traveled anywhere 
especially in western Oklahoma, you can see the uh, proliferation and the escape, if you will, of the red cedars uh, from the shelter belts and uh, and other areas that were uh, less subject to uh, periodic burning. Absolutely. They, they become a, become a major issue across a lot of those uh, prairie states like that. So, again, some of that was natural. Some of that was a function of reduced fire frequency, as my preacher Paul says. You're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose the consequences. And so, again, sometimes we got to be aware that things can move uh, move from where we wanted and be prepared to uh, implement some control practices on those um, as necessary. Gene, let's um, let's talk about the status of the shelter belts today. Again, some of those are still. I mean, I, I remember traveling up through Kansas, Nebraska. And some of those are still wonderful and beautiful. I almost want to cry when I see some of those uh, around Hollis, Oklahoma there, because uh, they're basically non, they're, they're not functional like they were 40 years ago. The, the ice storms, uh, maybe cattle had access to them and grazed them out. They're just literally a shell of what they used to be and, and could be. So, uh, if we talk about those shelter belts, what would you say is the effective life? of a shelter belt? Well, you know, a lot of them are still they're They're not in nearly the nice shape that they once were in, but you know, haven't been established in the, in the thirties. And so what is that? We're talking about almost 90 years old. Uh, uh, some of those old original ones. Uh, and, and I want to, you know, my, my glasses, I know yours is too, but my glass is a lot of times uh, half full instead of half empty. If there's people in western Oklahoma and eastern Panhandle of Texas uh, that that want to take what they have and try to pull it up by the bootstraps uh, today, those things can be um, those things can be cleaned out. They can be they can be trimmed. Uh, trees can be replaced. They can be they can be widened out with additional rows of uh, shrub plantings. They can be refenced. Uh, there's a lot of things. Uh, uh, maybe not necessarily always with cost share from, from Fish and Wildlife Service or the State Game Department or, or USDA NRCS, but, um, or, or even uh, the, the state forestry outfits, but they, they, they can be pulled up by the bootstraps and helped and improved and uh, uh, to, to be perpetuated, if you will. Um, but, you know, without any kind of maintenance and fences falling down and, and, and cattle in them all the time and no attention, then they're, they're eventually, they'll eventually, you and I have both seen them just go away. And that's, uh, again, it almost makes me weep to think about uh, what great times and great hunts that I had in those over the last 50 years and, and to watch them and to know that, uh, you know, they need to, like I said, need to be pulled back up by their bootstraps. So, so let's say that if we had a debilitated tree row and, and we were interested in it, whether or not we got cost share or not, what would be some of the things we might do to try to renovate that tree row and make it more like it's uh, beauty of the past? Right. Um, the late, the late Robert Fewen, Bob Fewen, who was the uh, West Texas forester, there at the old A&M Research and Extension Center, where the where the West Texas Nursery of Texas Forest Service, now Texas A&M Forest Service, where they used to be, 
um, he, he taught me a lot about that. He said, you want to go to those old belts and you're working with a landowner who wants to improve them. <clears throat> First thing, if, if they don't hardly have any fence left, uh, and if it's so, if it's, if the ground is such that <clears throat> it's not so, uh, uh, built up and mounded up that you can get a tractor over it. He said, uh, you can chisel, you can, you can take a, a big enough tractor and, and, uh, and, and a chisel, you know, one or one or two chisels on a, on a toolbar and you can deep chisel right at the drip line, right at the drip line of the of the mature trees on the outside of that belt to try to help attract and 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 facilitate more moisture in there, if you will. So first of all, uh, uh, chiseling it at the outer tree line, then uh, uh, obviously pruning and not necessarily removing, uh, just pruning and 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 let lay. Uh, uh, material in there that's obviously making trees unhealthy, replacing trees, and then consider if, if the ground will, if the ground will allow and the landowner is, is willing to give up a few rows of whatever, if he's farming instead of ranching, um, perhaps some, some new rows of native shrub plantings to complement the old existing planting and then fencing to enable management, fencing to enable management. What are we talking about? Axe cow plow fire and gun that you and I have known and used and espoused all through our careers. Uh, there's nothing wrong with periodic short duration grazing inside of those things, but not letting cattle not letting cattle live in them year round. That's a that's that's certainly a an applicable thing that could be done. So combination of all of that, sort of on a customized basis, what a landowner has and their wherewithal to do and their interest to do, those things can be greatly um, conserved and improved, if you will. Well, you know, even in their um, degenerated state, like many of them are today, the ones that I see, uh, at the very least, they uh, accumulate tumbleweeds, and those tumbleweeds uh, serve uh, as, in some some respects as uh, shelter, escape cover, thermal cover for quail, and so forth. So just the fact that they are stopping tumbleweeds, and and again, we got to keep in mind that these were put in the ground not so much for uh, wildlife conservation that, that was no. certainly a benefit, but they were there to keep the soil in place. Absolutely. And, and so uh, I think it was George, pretty sure President George Washington who said that uh, the history of every nation is eventually written in the way in, in which it cares for its soil. And we certainly learned some bitter lessons in the 20s and 30s. And again, tip our caps off to the uh, predecessors of the Soil Conservation Service and, and those landowners and WPA and all those other groups that put together. Uh, some of the soil conservation practices that we enjoy today. Uh, there were two things, Gene, that, that kind of led to the demise of many of the shelter belts in my part of the world. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, I just cried when I'd see some of them bulldozed out so somebody could add just another uh, drill width of uh, wheat, and that wheat was worth about $2 a bushel back then. I, ju I just, oh, I just... Uh, I just want to weep. And then the other thing, it seems like to me over the last 25 years, that's been uh, a very popular agricultural and agronomic uh, project, and that's center pivots. Uh, have, a lot of those have gone in, and of course, uh, 
a lot of shelter belts suffered as a result of that because they were taken out so they wouldn't impede those uh, center pivot irrigations. But um, I, I just, um, I encourage you, if you still have some of those, to just appreciate your shelter belts. Uh, some of them may look like relics, but they're still functional, and they could be made more functional. And I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, give a shout-out to two of my 2000. 13 quail masters from south southeastern Colorado, Stan Elmore and Jonathan Wrights. Jonathan worked for the Colorado Division of Wildlife, and they've made uh, some really good showings on creating windbreak plantings, uh, not, not necessarily the same uh, purposes that the um, shelter belts from the 1930s, but uh, Gene, I might ask you to talk about those uh, if we want to call them wind, wind rows or wind breaks or whatever the case might be. But uh, Stan and, and Jonathan, and I could probably get you a copy of their PowerPoint if you're interested in this, have had some tremendous success in uh, creating habitat there in southeastern Colorado for scale quail. And they're doing it in fairly rapid order. I mean, probably less than seven years They've created uh, using things like four-wing saltbush and other plants, uh, being able to create some vertical structure that uh, is, is, has proved beneficial to quail, blue quail especially, in that part of the world. But at the same time, and I know Gene's going to echo this, uh, we have to be one of the lessons that I, I think we've learned or are learning, if you're in uh, Lester Prairie Chicken country, those vertical structures may have backfired on us. And so while they may have been beneficial to Bob Whites and Blue Quail, uh, they may not have been the best thing uh, for uh, critters like uh, lesser prairie chickens. Gene, you want to comment on that? Yeah, it's going to be, it's, it's, it'll be time for a new fresh look at all of that because, because with the, with the recent uh, new listing of, uh, of lesser prairie chickens uh, split into two populations, the Northern, the northern population, uh, northeast Texas Panhandle and and uh, Kansas and northwestern Oklahoma, versus the uh, the southern population of of uh, the uh, southwest corner of the of the Panhandle, South Plains, and eastern New Mexico, and so forth. Um, yeah, trees, trees, and and any kind of tall man-made structures uh, that that would promote uh, you know raptor. Raptor perches. That's that's not positive. That is not positive for lesser prairie chickens. And uh, the 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 southern population, by the way, has been listed as uh, threatened. And the excuse me, the southern population listed as endangered, and the northern is threatened. So um, that's you know, vertical structure comes into play. So definitely, it's it's one thing to be using you know center pivot circle irrigation corners that maybe have a real good native short grass prairie mix that's blue quail habitat and adding some stuff like four wing salt bush, aromatic sumac, what have you. That's that's one thing. But but you know taller trees are probably not advised in any kind of new work and and where they exist. Uh, you know if a landowner is truly interested and they're in close by in chicken country, you know those those are some things that that could be actually things could be benefited by their removal. Gene, I know you've probably been uh, associated with some of those more modern tree plantings, if you will, um, where they're using the weed barrier and uh, some kind of polymer that they put on the roots or whatever. Could you briefly describe for our listeners what that process involves? Yeah, that's the, that's the ticket. Um, 
the the using weed barrier using weed barrier fabric mulch uh, uh, definitely uh, we've we've got a Parks and Wildlife Department and, and and you can get these same similar type specs from uh, USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service or certainly Texas A&M Forest Service um, probably the Game Department in Western Oklahoma if you're listening there but but uh, you know pro protocol for establishing shelter belts and and real good site prep if you will. Uh, uh, for these multi-row uh, woody plantings, uh, kind of kind of fixing them up with uh, by chiseling first, and then using a rotavator on them to where you've got you know a, a real nice deep fluffy onion bed type uh, uh, type uh, uh, substrate for planting, uh, and then the running the tree planter through there, the tractor drawn tree planter using using containerized or, or bare root uh, rootstock grown by. Uh, uh, you know, for example, in our case, West Texas Nursery, locally grown, locally adapted stuff, and then going right over it with Weeberry or fabric mulch and little shovels on that installation machine that's tractor drawn, uh, covers covers the edges of that fabric. With one good initial watering, um, those, and then the Weeberry or fabric mulch on there, that that's where we're getting such high 85, 90% survivability. Uh, and easy to have 100% survivability with some replacements, and those things do so well because eliminating eliminating of the weed and grass competition immediately around the plant, and then conserving soil moisture, and just creating a little microclimate there. And uh, those some of the plantings that we did now, I have the luxury of going back to and looking at with cooperating landowners, and on and for example on the at the Demet unit of the Plagiolex WMA. Uh, that actually Dana visited recently and sent me a picture from there. Uh, that that weed barrier fabric mulch, even after 20, 25 years, is good quality stuff and it's still in place. You get what you pay for. And um, those things have really had tremendous growth rates because of these, you know, good seed bed and uh, control of, of uh, weeds and grass around the immediate uh, uh, item that's planted. And so with uh, with very little supplemental watering, you know, very high survival. So we've learned, we've learned. Gene, are any of these practices uh, available for cost share through the, say, the continuous CRP program with the Farm Services Agency? Thank you very much. The uh, field windbreaks are a eligible practice under the um, from USDA and RCS under the continual the continuous. CRP, CCRP, continuous CRP program. Uh, uh, the West Texas Nursery of Texas A&M Forest Service. They have uh, they have assistance available, technical and, and perhaps financial assistance. I don't know the exact particulars, but I know that they are in that business. Absolutely, uh, landowners can get assistance uh, if they wish to put some of these new plantings in. And speaking of the AM Forest Service there at Idaho, if you're interested in in, pick, in purchasing those bare root seedlings of aromatic sumac or rainbow wild plum, some of those better cultivars, uh, you better get your get your order in early because the chances are they're already out of those for this year. So uh, work through your soil and water local soil and water conservation district or contact them at the Texas AM Forest Service there probably back in about October and get your order in for those seedlings or they'll be, uh, they'll be gone. Uh, Gene, one thing we haven't talked about, again, we've talked about their, the utility of these plantings again for Bob whites and cottontail rabbits and ringneck pheasants and wild turkeys. 
But what about pollinators? There's a lot of political and biological interest in pollinator species. Can we expect some benefits there or, or are they limited? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure exactly um, uh, how large a benefits we would expect from those areas, but th but they are natural. Good, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a good connection because those are natural areas that, that if, if landowners are considering uh, rejuvenating, if they're considering rejuvenating some of the old belts that they may have or installing new uh, woody plantings to kind of mimic the old ones like we've been talking about, uh, for a few rows more, for a few more rows wide, they may be able to get cost share uh, from, from NRCS for, uh, I believe it's, uh, don't hold me to this now, NRCS listeners out there. It may be CP43. I'm not sure about the exact number letter designation, but anyway, pollinator habitat. That That's for a few extra rows, uh, uh, an extra 10 or 15 yards. Uh, if you're going to put in a new fence uh, by while renovating some of these older plantings or establishing new plantings specifically for wildlife, you know, as part of a wildlife management plan, um, for your property, the, those would be the, the perfect spots uh, to install a pollinator component. As we bring our podcast to a close, uh, are there some, some publications that you could recommend to people that uh, if they want to get on the internet and look for more information? Where would you steer them towards? Yes, sir. For establishing woody plants today, uh, uh, where and when and cost share programs, I would certainly recommend that landowners contact the uh, Texas A&M Forest Service, West Texas Nursery, uh, that West Texas Nursery has a website, uh, your local uh, USDA NRCS field office, Parks, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department for, for high plains and rolling plains. If you go to the uh, um, uh, uh, wildlife management use on agricultural lands, the, the, the conversion from, from, from agricultural use to wildlife management use and go to those guidelines on Parks and Wildlife Department's website, they will have uh, a whole entire uh, uh, appendix on that. Uh, it is, um, uh, it is, uh, I'm going to get it. I'm, I'm not sure if it's Appendix R or Appendix L, but it's Establishing Shelter Belts for Wildlife. And uh, there's a lot of detail in there, a lot of detail and species and planning techniques and designs and, and tips. And uh, it's, it's all there for you. Uh, not to mention you know, technical assistance. And I know you and I co-authored uh, with some other authors at Texas Tech 20 years ago, a publication about uh, improving former CRP lands for wildlife. And part of that was Woody Plant Establishment. And I don't remember exactly the title, but I'm sure if you get on there and Google some of those terms, uh, it, would, I, it would come I think up. That's, uh, I think that's, uh, if you can still find it, I don't know that if they still produce it at the department nowadays, the Department of Natural Resources Management, but I believe that was, uh, if I'm remembering right, Dale, that was management note number 14, and it was wildlife wildlife habitat management on former CRP lands uh, put together by yourself and and me and uh, Nellie and uh, Brother Kaufman and Mr. Valentine, Gary Valentine. Gary Valentine, by the way, agreed with you that uh, when I did a little research and checking, that uh, uh, he thought the southernmost old shelter belts were about about that Paducah area. Yeah. Well, again, as you travel up Highway 83 or other 
northbound highways going through the eastern panhandle or western Oklahoma moving on up. If you're going pheasant hunting up, pheasant hunting up in the Dakotas, when you pass those shelter bells, we'll just tip your orange cap over to them because uh, they've provided yeoman's duty for wildlife and uh, certainly are one of the special habitats. And we as conservationists can uh, can be, uh, we can take a, a little round of applause, if you will, for uh, being a part of that. And certainly it's been a great movement. Gene, I appreciate your expertise and uh, I wish you the best in your future endeavors. And I know that uh, your mine and your paths will continue to cross. And I want you to come down to the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, which I don't think you've ever been down to. And won't you come down there and spend the day with me down there at that. Uh, you got any last comments for our listeners this morning? Just uh, appreciate the chance to be here and uh, appreciate the chance to always talk about um, uh, the value of uh, habitat restoration and habitat management, uh, more especially on private lands here in Texas. It's same thing in same thing for any Oklahoma listeners. Uh, it's uh, it's what makes the world go round for wildlife in in our part of the in our part of the country. Well, these windbreaks, tree rows, shelter belts uh, truly do satisfy that axiom that if you build it, they will come. And so, uh, try that, and hopefully, you've you picked up some good insight this morning on how to do that. So, Gary, with that, uh, we're going to send it back to you in the studio. And I look forward to listening to our, our speaking with our visitors again in February. And we'll see you then. Signing off. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale. And thank you, Gene Miller. Great insights and information to help us all appreciate habitats in 2023. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. At the site, you will find more about the Foundation's research ranch, its research projects, and a great list of frequently asked questions. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.